Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking the start of term a new lockdown and COVID, and we look to the year ahead, everything that might happen and what it means for higher education. It's all coming up. The Clapham Omnibus test here, you know, the person on the Clapham Omnibus, the Clapham Omnibus test is met when the same article, only the words are in a different order, appears in The Guardian and The Telegraph. And the other day, effectively the same article was there, which was, why should students be paying for accommodation they've been ordered not to use by the government? That isn't an issue that's going to go away. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Mark Leach, Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, and joining me for a New Year's special, it's Team Wonky. In London, we have Wonky's Editor, Debbie McVitty. Debbie, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, I think my highlight of the week was probably the enormous Chinese I ate uh, following the press conference on Monday, where we discovered that everybody was going back into lockdown. So the, the the press conference itself was not the highlight, but the the enormous Chinese that I had to make to make to make myself feel better, it definitely was. And in Watford, we have associate editor Jim Dickinson. Jim, your highlight of the week. Watcher. Um, yeah, yesterday I uh, the doorbell went, and I ran downstairs and opened the door, and the our local postman in Watford, where we've had some uh, difficulties over Christmas, delivered the Christmas Radio Times. And in South Gloucestershire, we have Wonky's other associate editor, DK. That's David Kernahan to you and me. DK, DK, your highlight of the week. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm split, I think, between Gavin Williamson confidently announcing to the House that he the last thing he wanted to do was to open schools and um, having some really delicious takeaway. It's absolutely been a week for takeaways, I think. So... The start of term is looking a little bit different to how we thought it might at the end of last year with a new national lockdown, essentially, um, and um, changes across the different nations of the UK about how students are expected back. Um, But still a great deal of uncertainty and, as ever, patchy information and guidance coming from uh, our governments. Um, Okay, Jim, can you tell us through actually what's changed? Oh, uh, that's. I mean, that's actually a very good question. Um, I, I don't think I'm alone in uh, regarding this week. It's quite. I can't believe we've only been back a week. <laughs> we haven't even started the daily yet. Um, yeah, a lot has happened. So um, obviously, late last week, um, we discovered that the planned staggered return of uh, taught students in England was to be. Well, I was about to say slow down. We don't really know <laughs> uh, what kind of form it might take yet, other than 
um it, you know most students on in what we would call the kind of non-essential categories were not to return until at least mid-february there would there was going to be a review point and so on and there's been some toing and froing all week about which courses are included and uh community students and what you do for people that are still in in situ and so on and so on so that played out um very late last week probably too late for a lot of students who you know had probably already you know boarded a train or you know got themselves um to another part of the country if they study away from home um obviously when england does that sort of thing when bagpuss wakes up all his friends wake up too and so the question then arises what happens in uh, the devolved nations um story goes that kirsty williams met with vice chancellors in wales earlier this week and resolved to make no changes to the plans in wales which is um, i think what sir humphrey would call a bold call minister particularly if there's suddenly a big outbreak in a set of halls next week somewhere in wales um and then the complete opposite to that has happened today so we're recording on friday and uh, nicola sturgeon has just announced just as we're recording just after lunch on friday um that the staggered return in scotland um except for essential courses in in health and so on won't now begin until at least march um and look you know there are at least a handful of universities in scotland whose you know term is due to end two weeks into march so you know if again if there are students studying away from home at those universities um they will in theory be some of them because it's a staggered return would be back for what a week two weeks and so on and so on so you know, I think people will know. We published on Monday a piece that said, "Look, uh, the the term is probably a face to face write off. It's easier to, it's probably better and easier if we just accept that now." And that 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 evidence is starting to stack up um, as the as the as the week continues. Yeah, and in terms of the the Westminster government, um, the, it seems like the, the expectation is that uh, the face to face is going to be slightly more limited than. Um, was previously announced and under the stagger return dk you, you you ran down the list of different uh different courses oh this is absolutely uh fascinating uh the westminster government has chosen to specify which students are supposed to be on campus having a face-to-face experience quite precisely they've gone right down to the level of individual hecos uh codes of course if you're releasing a list of individual individual HECO subject codes, the best way to do it is as an unsorted list on a PDF uh, with no identifiers. They first did this on the 31st of December in Michelle Donland's letter to students, which obviously everybody would have read immediately. And then in the guidance, they actually updated this list without drawing anyone's attention to it. The only possible way you would know that there is now an an extra small number of uh, subjects is if you extracted the two lists from two separate uh, PDFs and then laboriously compared them. Uh, I mean, I've obviously done this on the site, but quite what on earth the FE are playing at at that particular point, I have no idea whatsoever. The other thing to bear in mind is that there are potentially quite a lot of students that are going to be studying one of one or more of these courses um it is broadly speaking healthcare stuff and medicine education and uh social works for some providers that's quite a lot of students we get up to the likes of uh 
King's College London. It could be up to 6,000 undergraduate students potentially on campus in the early parts of January. Now, I can understand the argument that there are certain subjects where practical activities are supremely important. But we also have to bear in mind in certain parts of London, um, approximately one in every 20 people are infected with COVID. Now, this does not strike me as a good time to be bringing any students back for any reason whatsoever. Um, and yet we still appear to be going ahead. So there's lots of questions there still to be answered. And I'm not really holding my breath as to when they're going to be answered. One of the other battle lines of this uh, this new lockdown, Debbie, is, is this question about critical workers as well. So um, a, a, a universities are by and large telling their staff that, uh, that what they do is counts as, as, as critical and therefore they can access childcare. Um, obviously, one of the trickiest things to juggle uh, uh, learning from the last lockdown. But there's been a big backlash from... Uh, many who say that uh, they shouldn't be given that exemption and uh, concerns about schools filling up um, with too many people, classes, critical workers. In fact, I don't think it's just the HE sector. I think lots of people um, have found themselves designated thusly um, in this lockdown when they when they weren't in the last. Yeah, well, I think the, the bigger picture here is that this lockdown shares a lot of the characteristics with the first, first lockdown in March. But the um, effort, you know, there, there's sort of a clear sense from the government, although I don't think they've explicitly said this, that they are trying very hard to protect as much of the economy as possible in a way that perhaps wasn't as much of a priority in the first lockdown because we hadn't already suffered all the economic consequences of having been in lockdown at that point. Um, so we have seen, for example, that nurseries have stayed open. Um, great for people with toddlers, but I think there are also a lot of parents worrying about whether it's the right thing to send their child to nursery and, and what the kind of consequences of that might be. Likewise, um, Given that government has said, you know, universities must continue teaching and the expectation is, is that everything will be delivered online at the same quality and that uh, students who are on campus will have access to provision and services, it becomes extremely hard not to argue that the staff who are delivering uh, those services and, and that teaching are not, you know, de facto, therefore, critical workers. Um, it, it, that all gets very quickly quite challenging Partly, obviously, because of the bigger context of the of the sheer scale of of spread of COVID nineteen in the population and the implications of of people moving around for 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 stopping you know for for stopping that, but also um, some schools we, I believe are. You know, if, if you're a school that's located in a, in a university town, for example, then obviously quite a large proportion of your uh, pupils might actually be the children of, of academics or, or uh, HE staff. So, um, you know, your ability to then protect the students of the critical workers that you're teaching becomes uh, compromised if everybody... And, 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 and then the third kind of issue there, I suppose, is the... Um, the ambiguity, because if, if you're a school in that situation, of course, you call up the parents and you say, can you please... You know, I know that you, you know. I know that you might technically be designated critical workers, but could you please not act like it for the purposes of keeping everyone safe? So, it, it's leaving a lot of parents, I think, in a sort of uh, catch twenty two situation where their employer is saying, "Well, you should access childcare, and it's not our problem." But the schools are saying, "Actually, it's not really very safe." And of course, they'll be thinking personally, "Is it the right thing to do to send my child into school?" So, um, to add that to the kind of already existing burden of of online delivery and, and, and blended delivery and and all the rest of it, I can imagine there's an awful lot of very stressed, itchy professionals out there right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jim, you've been writing about this on Twitter a lot this week, but the um, kind of return of the kind of calls for no detriment. Um, and there's been some national moves in that, in, 
uh, in and around that kind of policy of the last couple of days. Can you talk us through talk us through that and what's changed? Yeah, so look, I mean, in some ways, the calls for no detriment resemble the calls for no detriment in the spring, insofar as um, everyone says no detriment or safety net, and they mean something different often. <laughs> um, and, and also, I mean, it's gone fairly viral. So, you know, there's lots of evidence of students just sort of talking to each other, um, you know, when they're at home uh, about, you know, why haven't I got a no detriment policy? And to some extent, this has been fuelled by... Uh, the TAB, the National Student uh, Network of kind of online uh, student tabloid newspapers, has been encouraging its local branches to get their local kind of people to talk about the no detriment thing. So it's gone really big uh, the last week or so. It, it was bubbling just before Christmas, and I wrote something just before Christmas about this, but it's gone really big this week. Um, and obviously that's manifested in students' unions then trying to have those conversations with universities. Now, it's difficult because what I might call pure no detriment, uh, where you effectively say you won't do any worse than you've done so far, depends on you having a record of how well people have done so far. So if there's not that much evidence of attainment so far, it's actually quite difficult to implement no detriment. And so you need to put a load of other things in place and then potentially put a no detriment sticker on um, in order to say that you're kind of doing it. And some universities have, you know, are not doing grade benchmarking or, you know, grade floors, packaging up a bunch of other stuff and calling it no detriment. Other universities are reinventing types of new de no detriment. And then one of the things that happened yesterday, so today's Friday when we're recording on Thursday, is the Russell Group took a really interesting, I can't remember this happening for a long time, the Russell Group issued a statement saying, Here's why we won't be implementing a no detriment policy. And look, you know, I just say two things about it. First is my view is that where students are saying they want a no detriment policy, what they're expressing out loud is that they are worried about their attainment this year. And either that lack of confidence is justified or not justified. If it's not justified and they're going to do fine, then we should reassure them. If it is justified, we need to put more support in so that they attain this year. And my worry is that there's a lot of debate about tactic, but not much interrogation of how well students are doing this year. And if you look at the debate that's going on in schools, it is clear that we're starting to get a much clearer picture of how well students in schools are doing and therefore what we should do about it than we have in higher education. And certainly it's the case that if some students are doing worse than usual and some students are doing better than usual, universities will do well to try and work out who it is that's doing worse than usual now because we might have a major access and participation problem on the participation end, uh, you know, by the end of the year if we're not careful. Debbie, wh why might the Russell Group be taking a collective position about this and not others? I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to why not others, but I think I could speculate about where the Russell Group is coming from because the, the background to this, of course, is the government's preoccupation with grade inflation. And, and I think also, I mean, there, it, there is a sort of recognised need in a general level to maintain standards and to be seen to be maintaining standards. And that, you know, there's also a school of thought that says all of that should be clearly immediately go out the window in, in, the, in the teeth of a sort of national crisis. Um, but I think it is, you know, it continues to be important to universities that when they are awarding qualifications, that they are awarding them to candidates who have demonstrated that they've met the learning outcomes to achieve those qualifications. Um, and I think there's clearly a sort of sense that this, the, you know, this, this sort of widespread call for no detriment is 
essentially a, 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 a you know would, would sort of create a kind of slippery slope potentially that that could erode those standards. I also think there's something a bit more kind of tricky going on. It's kind of what Jim alluded to, or is that the implication? If you read if you read the kind of the, you know the wording of the statement, the implication that is is that it made sense to implement no detriment last March when it was sort of at the back end of the year and it was very you know and and the learning environment for students had changed radically very quickly and um, but up until that point students had had lots of opportunities to demonstrate what they were what they were able to do and the scale of the change of the learning environment was sort of recognized that it would would negatively impact what the Ross group is essentially saying is is that this year that hasn't been the case that the you know provision has been put in place the learning and teaching has been happening and therefore the idea that students would be able to claim that their experience or the amount of learning that they've been able to acquire in the time in during this year has been affected isn't a legitimate claim. And that, I think, is where you get into very tricky territory because basically, you know, if, if you boil it down, the Russell Group is saying um, to allow for the idea that no detriment should be a, a policy that is implemented across the sector would be to concede that the quality of students learning this year has been sub subpar. And that is a, that would be a really, really tricky thing for universities to concede because you open up all kinds of uh, doorways to, to sort of students claiming compensation, to uh, you know, investig regulatory investigation and, and, all, and all the rest of it, which is a, a can of worms that um, has been kind of sitting on the table to mix my metaphors for, for a long time, but really, really nobody wants I mean, to get you know, the, look, the What I would say about it is, uh, you, know, you know, one of the things in the Russell Group statement, and you know, don't get me wrong, this isn't just the Russell Group. This has been coming out from a number of universities that have been having these conversations. One of the things in the Russell Group statement is it talks about the challenges that students have faced in accessing their learning, in, you know, doing well this year, the challenges that students have had in terms of disruption, isolation and mental health and so on. But, but it frames those challenges as something that students have faced and then frames what universities have delivered as something that's been fine. Now, look, all educational outcomes are partnership. They're a partnership between students and their university students and academics. It takes two to tango. But this is not strictly <laughs> because the professional dancers have had real challenges too. The idea that universities have been able to deliver fine and it's just students that have had challenges isn't going to wash as a line for the, for, for, for the, for the whole year, particularly when academics are, are doing their level best being honest and are striking up decent relationships with students online and students understand that academics have also struggled that universities have also struggled that the that the guidance keeps changing so we're going to need to try to find a way of having this conversation about attainment how people are doing and how we fix it where it's going wrong without this kind of chest beating and what we've done on the, on our side is brilliant thing because that's not going to wash the um one of the other uh, touch points of the, the debates for the last few weeks has been A-levels, of course, um, and the uh, total shit show, I think it's fair to say, coming out of the Department for Education as per usual, but on, on a scale uh, that surprised even the, the most seasoned Westminster watchers. Uh, DK, talk us through what's changed and the implications on, on the year ahead. So, as predicted by absolutely everybody in the entire world uh uh gavin williamson told the house that exams by which he means primarily uh gcse's as levels and a levels in england will be cancelled for this year this is notable because he spent the the, the majority of the back end of last year insisting that they will not be because altogether now exams are the best way of assessing students uh, they're not, of course, but that's an issue maybe for another day. Um, 
So uh, this completes the UK. Um, there was an, an announcement in Northern Ireland on the same day. We already uh, knew that A-levels would not be happening as exams in Wales and that hires would not be happening as exams in Scotland. Now, uh, Gavin Williamson insisted that there was a plan, a plan uh, B, the exact same plan B that he claimed not to have before Christmas, to assess students without final exams. Uh, we don't know exactly what this is yet. There's going to be a consultation, supposedly a two-week uh, consultation, so we should know in, every, in early February, uh, what these are going to be. In Scotland and in Wales, the approach is much more along the lines of, is much more along the lines of teachers and schools, um, administering and marking assessments that have been created, um, actually by an awarding body. Uh, and in, in Wales, you still have uh, coursework actually within A-levels and where possible that will go ahead as well. Now, uh, Gavin Williamson has said that it's not going to be a matter of the algorithm again. It's going to be a matter of uh, trusting uh, teachers to assess students. Now, Last year, we eventually moved to a system where we trusted teachers' assessments, and that led to what people like Robert Halfen are calling um, massive grade inflation. It could, of course, equally be argued that these are the grades that teachers reckon students would get. So uh, the exam series in previous years were actually under-reporting these, but again, that's maybe a conversation for another day. We do not know what the um, awarding uh, profile is going to be across the whole of the cohort, which makes it very difficult for admission staff in universities to start making offers. Now, recall uh, that you are not allowed in uh, most cases to make an unconditional offer, which means that you need in some way to use these grades. I mean, whatever they may end up uh, being, however they are derived, whatever the profile is, you need to use these grades to make an assessment of who to make an offer to and who to admit. Uh, the UCAS uh, deadline, I should mention, has been uh, pushed back a couple of weeks to the 29th. Uh, this is primarily uh, going to benefit uh, students that were going to be uh, applying late to get to the final uh, deadline. But the task ahead, and I've uh, written a little bit about this on the site, the task ahead for admission staff is almost impossible. We do not know what the marks are going to look like at the end of the day. We don't know if there's going to be loads and loads of A's and A stars like there were last year. We don't know if they're going to be moderated. We don't know if it's going to be a fair assessment of the potential of students if you take the view that an A-level is an assessment of potential rather than an assessment of knowledge and attainment. Uh, so quite what is going to happen there, I have absolutely no idea, but it is absolutely one to keep an eye on. I think what needs to happen, essentially, is the exact reverse of what happened last year when there was a moratorium on unconditional offers. I think the there needs to be a sort of acceptance that universities are going to have to use their discretion to, you know, using the, you know, their judgment about the best of the information available and make unconditional offers. Because it, you know, if, if, if ultimately the goal here is to make sure that this generation of young people are 
uh, you know, to the best of everyone's ability, suffer no further educational disadvantage, then getting them into university seems to be kind of step one. And then, you know, and, there, and it, it may be that in some cases there needs to be some um, extra support put in place and, and, you know, universities will need to decide whether they're up for that, but in, you know, in, in individual cases. But I think, go, you know, going through this whole rigmarole of waiting for results, you know, heavily kind of, you know, scare quoted and, and, and then everyone kind of finding out if they got into the university of their choice when none of the data specifically you know, it's, it's even it's even more unreliable than usual. Mm. You know, that just, just doesn't just seem to be in the best interest of young people. And we have to emphasise in here that the uh, the bit of the data that is more unreliable than usual is the actual results. It's uh, um, not the predicted grades. The predicted grades are probably a fair reckoning of where teachers think that students are. But um, you, you have to remember that th- teachers were issued, so last year teachers issued predicted grades thinking that the system would happen, you know, as, as it does every year. This year they're issuing them in the context of knowing that there could be disruption. So although, you know, you, you, know, you absolutely trust the professionalism of teachers, you also have to kind of bake in an assumption that there's a, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not perhaps using the same calculation as they would every year and it's, it's, it doesn't therefore kind of uh, necessarily uh, stack but- up. The predicted grades were issued at a time that the Secretary of State was going around assuring everybody that <laughs> there's absolutely no way exams are going to be cancelled. I think the predictions might be different because obviously students have had a different learning experience this year. I mean, these are students that um, ha- have missed huge chunks of face-to-face learning in the first and second year of their A-levels. So, I mean, teachers with the best possible will in the world about the efforts that teachers are making to provide online provision, they will not have seen these students as much. They won't necessarily know these students as well, but the predictions are at least there and they're at least made by uh, professionals. The thing that really just adds that extra spice to all of this mix is that it's the stated attention of the Secretary of State to move not this year, admittedly, but next year, to a system of post-qualification application. Now, you could not do PQA this year. It just is based on next to no data. It is, um, and it really concerns me that the stated policy of the government is to, uh, is to kind of bake in this lack of, uh, resilience to the system. And I think we're in a very, very strange place with admissions at the moment. Right. In this most unpredictable of years, we are still trying to think about what might be coming up in the uh, weeks and months ahead. Um, And I'm going to ask you all to take your crystal balls out um, as we turn our attention to the future, uh, at least as much of 2021 as as we can see. Um, Yeah, well, look, let's look at the um, immediate kind of near future uh first so i i've got this kind of working theory that we've effectively got three types of taught student knocking around at the moment there's a bunch of students uh that are back already or at least are about to be back in the kind of you know the health space mainly uh, the health of animals or people um where uh, you know, the, the arrangements have been made. Some of that is about, you know, got to deliver the right number of uh, nurses to meet Boris's target and, you know, to, to, to supply the health service, blah, 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 blah. So there's, there's a small number of students who, you know, everything is carrying on 
I won't say as normal, but you know what I mean. Right at the other end of the spectrum, there's a bunch of students who don't really need, in order to complete their degree, any face-to-face teaching whatsoever. And I think the practical reality is that regardless of when, certainly in Scotland and England, the term kind of gets going again, not from a face-to-face point of view, they'll be last in the queue anyway. So, you know, this term's a write-off for those students. And if we just knew that now, people could put in place arrangements to make a, to make the best of that that we possibly can. The ones I'm really worried about is everyone in the middle, where people need studio time, uh, lab time, placement time, work experience placements, you know, all sorts of practical components. And my big fear is that people inside the department don't really understand the vast number of pretty heavily vocational and practical courses that we have in the UK these days, even what we might consider to be, you know, traditionally academic subjects. In the name of employability, people have been doing loads of really interesting kind of practical components to their degree programmes, particularly at postgraduate level and types of undergraduate level. And look, I think the danger is that what happens now is in order to finish the academic year on time, everyone starts trying to bodge square pegs into round holes and starts dropping practical components or pretending they're not really required in order to graduate people on time and i'd say a couple of things about that one i think students are going to be furious when those decisions start to be made and and two i think it starts to look really problematic if in march the death rate has fallen we're preparing to relax all the restrictions and the sector is saying to those students we won't extend the academic year by four or five weeks or by seven weeks or by nine weeks or whatever so i think there's a case to be made for the sector, both at institutional level and national level, to be starting to understand the extent to which there are components that we can't drop that would require students to be around for longer and then to work out the cost implications, the people implications and the time implications of that so that we don't, for example, end up graduating a load of events management students who've never had the opportunity to organise an event. Debbie, the government's been um, on on the brink of publishing things about skills and education policy for for seemingly months if not years um but they're they're kind of particularly on the brink at the moment with um slots lined up in the number 10 media grid that keep slipping but at least they're kind of getting closer and closer to actually happening what's what's going on uh so yeah so we're expecting two uh skills agenda relevant items to come out of government um imminently but of course you know that means very little these days um one is the fe white paper which we expect to introduce uh, higher technical qualifications, so qualifications at level four and five, uh, validated through centrally validated and and, and uh, you know creating routes into in, in uh, te- technical technical routes for for people that that, are, that don't have them at the minute, um, and grow, growing apprentice apprentices uh, apprenticeships, um, and also tinkering with the student loan funding arrangements in England, such that it would be in theory be possible to access four years of uh, student loan funding, uh, either in further or higher education, to be taken up at any point in your life. So, in theory, you could, you know, do a do a level four, go and in, go into employment, uh, you know, come back to a level five or six, and, and and so on and so forth. Um, and this is something that, from an HE perspective, is 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 very welcome. Although there's lots of things that have to be in place for it to work well, such as a meaningful national system of credit transfer. So that's um, that will be really interesting, and I think will uh, you know the sort of the, the the intention here is is to open up a range of opportunities, both for uh, primarily for the people who don't currently progress into higher education or who you know later in life need to reskill, and and it's widely understood that there is a need for um, you know better, more more you know sort of 
easily accessible opportunities for that group. Um, and then the other smaller group that, that is targeted here is the uh, the government's sort of belief about a, a group of people who are going to higher education but who otherwise uh, would would do better in in, in a technical route. Um, and that's a, that's a slightly different thing. And then that's, that taps into the other thing we're expecting, which is finally a response to the OGRA review, which uh, is published uh, 18 months ago, a bit, bit more than 18 months ago. Um, and that review, people will recall, proposed a whole range of things, including uh, a reduction in the higher education fee. So we're not necessarily expecting that because the level of disruption involved would be quite significant. But uh, we are certainly expecting commentary on uh, this, this sort of this, this tale of people who, who for whatever reason, we you know are, are not seeing the benefits of attending higher education and, and might do better in other sorts of courses, and particularly uh, potentially some encouragement for, and, and incentive from the government for universities to start thinking about provision at level four and five as well. So shorter courses, uh, you know, perhaps more employment relevant courses and the link between those sorts of courses these these the, you know the sort of em, em, employer engaged courses uh you know sort of smaller perhaps more more, more targeted at, at lifetime learning and the higher technical qualification piece uh, the link between those two isn't entirely clear but they're you know they're, they're clearly sort of trying to operate in, in a similar space so the whole that whole conversation and how they all link together will be very interesting when it gets up and running hmm. and uh dk link linked to that uh, package of uh, policies we also expect of um, a response to the the peers review. Um, you wrote a song about this before Christmas. I did indeed. Um, I would be quite surprised to see uh, a response to the peers review at this stage, uh, even though it is long overdue. Um, there is, of course, a more general consultation out at the moment about um, quality from the Office for Students. That's just been extended for a week. Responses are now due in by the 19th. And this is the one that uh, kind of bakes in the idea of uh, detailed and uh, supposedly uh, uh, principles-driven, but actually in the main uh, data-led definitions of quality and standards that would form a part of the regulatory framework. If you've been in uh, uh, Jim's uh, B3 Bear uh, fandom, uh, uh, the idea that some of these metrics that we've seen previously in uh, TEF on um, graduate employment, on non-continuation, etc., are going to end up in the regulatory framework as something every university, or indeed every part of every university, is going to miss. It's that consultation that is laying the groundwork. So we're looking really, I think, at the TEFification of the um, English regulatory framework rather than, I think, an adaption or another change to uh, TEF, uh, which I'm increasingly believing that probably nobody uh, cares about anymore apart from me. Well, the, the Pierce review is is imminent. I mean, it was due out this week. It might be next week or the, or the week after. Is there, Debbie? I mean, a, 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 do do you think that opportunity to to kind of get down on the more subject level um, is what is something that if you, you know joining up what you were saying about um, kind of government skills priorities essentially? Do do you think this is kind of um, an opportunity to pull the the quality lever in a way that? Uh, gets them to, to to gently push higher education in the in the way that they want. Um, I think I think if you're sitting in DfE and you've got an agenda, so if you start if you start with your agenda and you think right, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uh, nudge students who will not flourish in higher education or who won't get the outcomes that they that they need. And and I realise that the kind of 
you know, that proposition is the ability that students will be able to sort of, that, 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 that is a predictable outcome is a bit problematic. But, you know, like, sort of, you know, sort of hypothetically, if, if you're sort of saying there's, there's a bunch of students who go into higher education and then don't progress into graduate employment, we want to nudge those students into other options. And um, one of the ways we might do this is by signaling courses where they're not, where, you know, students in general don't seem to be getting those outcomes and, 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 and kind of implying that it should steer clear. Um, and, uh, and, and another way we might do that is by discouraging or actually actively stopping uh, providers from delivering those courses at all. So you're, you know, you're always thinking, where are my carrots, where are my sticks? Um, and I think the TEF sort of presents itself as a very useful both carrot and stick because it is, you know, it, it is designed for the dual purpose of informing student choice and also uh, driving university behaviour. So kind of, you know, identifying where, 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 good, where things are working well and, and uh, sort of penalising where, where things are not. So um, it would be very surprising indeed, and Jim has kind of explored this, in, you know, in a lot of depth on the site, if uh, the... If you know, if if they were not ruled out as a subject F that uh, in, enabled the identification of courses that had. Uh you know, under the sort of government quality rubric, you know, good outcomes for students um, and attempted to reward universities that were delivering those courses, nudge students towards them. But I suspect it, it wouldn't function, or, uh, so it, it won't fu it, it's not sufficient of a stick, I think, and this is where the regulatory intervention comes in. Um, so, I mean, and it is quite, it's really quite startling, some of the things that OFS has said, you know, it's a real change of direction in, in terms of how, uh, you know, the sector has traditionally thought about what perfor good performance looks like in terms of student outcomes. So, um, the part, you know, it's partly breaking it down by course with all the challenges that that, that entails in terms of actually segmenting courses and saying, you know, as distinct entities that you can, you know, make make claims about. But uh, also in the in the reduction of benchmarking. So, OFS has said that it fully expects that every student in a course should attain, you know, a, a certain benchmark in terms of outcomes of non-continuation and um, and graduate employment, um, and that no you know, no concession will be made to the demographic of students that that course recruits. Um, and of course, you, you can absolutely see that as being kind of phenomenally kind of positively equitable. Um, because of course, why should we accept, uh, you know, reduced outcomes for, you know, white working class men or, or whatever group, you know, you, you care to mention. But it's also, you know, completely sort of blind and deaf to the, <laughs> to the, the wider social context in which higher education is operating and in the limits of, of higher education as an instrument for, um, you know, delivering student outcomes. It's not, you know, it is not just in the gift of universities to cause these things to happen. And it's not really necessarily in every case a function of the quality of the course. So it, it, it is very tricky. What I, what I don't expect is, you know, so you'll, you'll, have, you'll, have, you'll have the OFS setting these thresholds anyway, wherever they, wherever they turn out to be, and where a, a pr provider is operating at a course level, either at or just, or even just above you know, below at or just above that threshold, they will become a, a target of regulatory interest, shall we say. So what I would imagine, actually, is that TEF will be sitting, if, you know, in, in terms of where, where, where you'd expect the conversation about TEF to be sort of well above the threshold. I very much doubt, for example, if you're sitting on that threshold of, you know, 75% non-continuation or whatever it turns out to be, um, that you will be able to get a TEF bronze at all. I think that would, you know, that, that would seem quite unlikely. The expectation is that, that most providers will be performing well above. Um, and, and that, I think, will become a sort of precondition for being given any kind of TEF award whatsoever. This, this talk of quality has potential to sound a bit abstract, doesn't it, Jim? When, I mean, a lot of people are talking about, um, you know, wanting direct refunds for their uh, for, the, for their fees. Um, it's also seeping, obviously, into the accommodation debate. Well, I mean, um, look, quickly, um, the, the, the Clapham Omnibus test here, you know, the person on the Clapham Omnibus, the Clapham Omnibus test is met when the same article only the words are in a different order, appears in The Guardian and The Telegraph. And the other day, effectively, the same article was there, which was, why should students be paying for accommodation they've been ordered not to use by the government? That isn't an issue that's going to go away. 
Um, obviously, there's now a kind of below-the-surface row going on between the sector and, and the government. Um, this is really complicated because it's partly about whether or not you just allow students to not pay or whether you actually compensate them. In other words, to, do you give money to the landlords, both university and private uh, 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 as well? There's a slightly different debate about tuition fees that I also don't think is going to go away. And in the end, if you follow the vanishing point on the picture, that is about what are students paying for? Are they paying for their course, which by and large is being delivered online in an equivalent way, or are they paying for access to this range of other things? And I don't mean amorphous stuff like friendship. I mean access to facilities and, you know, being able to sit down and having your free Wi-Fi on campus and so on and so on. And again, I don't think that issue is going to go away and... Uh, I suspect, again, there's a really complicated conversation going on just below the surface, uh, which is partly about, you know, who do you compensate? How do you do it fairly? And so on. What I would say is um, Boris Johnson has been caught out twice in a week at the uh, at the press conferences with questions of this sort. And he had no answer. And he's going to need an answer soon. Thanks a lot. Let's go to Stephen from Sheffield. University students have been encouraged to not return to rented town time addresses and have not received anywhere near the same quality of service that they would have received if it were not for the pandemic. Can the government outline then the ways that it intends to support university students over the coming weeks? Thanks very much, Stephen. And uh, this was a question that I've been asked repeatedly in the course of the last uh, few days. And uh, I, I think that uh, we need to look very hard at the deal that students are, are getting, uh, Stephen. And we need to see if we can, what more we can do, frankly, to, uh, to support uh, students and uh, to help them uh, in what has been a very, very difficult time. And, uh, you know, of course, at the moment, they're, they're not able to go back to their, to their universities, uh, except for a very, very few uh, key practical uh, courses, uh, and uh, I know how frustrating that is, and I know that I know the financial uh, frustrations that that entails. And I, I can tell you, Stephen, that we're we're looking at that now, and you'll you'll be hearing more uh, about that from the education secretary. Well, I'm going to ask you all to look in your crystal balls uh, one final time with uh, your wild cards for what might be interesting, important going on um, in 2021. Um, DK. So, Sunday, the 21st of March, 2021. Uh, The census will be carried out in England and in Wales. It will be delayed for a year in Scotland. Um, The census is a collection of uh, data on an area basis about uh, demographics, about levels of education, about earnings, about types of house everything from the number of likely student households in an area through to the average earnings in an area uh, comes from the census and is added every year. Now, you don't need me to tell you this is a weird time to be doing a census. We're not going to be getting normal results. But we need also to remember a lot of the area-based and demographic-based data that we use in HE is 10 years old. It needs to be renewed. Um in, I mean, just in uh, terms of it uh, making sense to be still using the data, but it's going to look radically different to what we have before. Quite what this means for stuff like polar, for stuff like the multiple equality measures, for stuff like ideas of earning, ideas of who's living in an area, all comes down to what is uh, gathered on that particular day. For the first day, for the first time, the census is being run entirely online. And also for the first time, it's going to feed into uh, cultural 
um, culture wars, in fact, stuff. Um, there is going to be a question on sexual preference. There is going to be a question on on gender identity. These are optional questions, but they are uh, uh, going to be there. To ex- so expect also to see a lot of coverage of that in the weeks before March. For a long, long time, but in, in the West, certainly, the left have owned protection and safety and the right have owned freedom and opportunity. And my prediction is w- when you're after a pandemic where everyone's been kind of cooped up and you're told they can't move and Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States of America and you've got Boris Johnson in charge, I think the left are going to try and have back freedom and opportunity and that will start to really change a lot of these kind of culture wars debates that have become actually fairly solidified during and and, and through the brexit debate and and change quite radically where politics goes next by the end of this calendar year Mm, i'm a bit i'm a bit torn actually (laughs) because um i the thing the thing the thing i've been thinking about um is is uh, equality and the equalities agenda and i suppose what you might characterize as the government's war on woke um and i think what we've been seeing is the sort of stirrings in government of uh, responding to what are perceived as uh, you know radical ideas of uh, uh, you know in, in for example critical race theory which sort of which which brings a kind of appreciation of, of the way systems produce uh, in, in inequities in uh, b- between between different ethnic groups and 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 the sort of I guess sense from within government that this is a is seen as a left left and liberal agenda and is problematic and uh, that we should be looking at individual individual level uh, inequities which of course are often produced by characteristics such as you know maternity and ethnicity and disability and all the rest of it but there was a big speech by Liz Truss uh, just before Christmas which which set some of that out and some and, and there's a question I think about the extent to which the government will want to double down on on some of this thinking certainly there is an agenda to promote equality but it is a, it is a form of equality that is defined as against a different version of promoting equality um, and, and that therefore taps very much into culture wars but the reason I'm sort of hesitant I think I think it's really important because I think it speaks to um, I think it speaks to the way universities think about widening participation and access and participation um, and, and also the way that they uh, manage and address uh, their own uh, I guess historic complicity in systemic racism and and, and other forms of in, in, inequality and and how they you know what redress they put in place for the, the staff and students who who have those characteristics and how they talk about it on campus and how and you know the actions they take and all the rest of it so I think all of that agenda will continue to be pressing in 2021 with the added kind of complexity of the kind of political background of everyone disputing what exactly what that looks like uh, but the reason I'm hesitant is because that's essentially kind of three three bites of the culture wars cherry and I'm, I'm not sure that this is the year that where it's going to be the culture wars is going to be the dominant force. I think there's actually just also going to be a really practical challenge about uh, this cohort, the, you know, the 2021-22 cohort coming into university. Um, even if by September things are by and large back to normal, I think there is going to have to be a lot of thinking going on now about the support that those students will need um, and, and, you know, and, and all the things that you know, have been learned over, over the past year and a half uh, about about learning, teaching, student support, student well-being, uh, mental health, the support that staff need to support students, and, and all the rest of it. So I suspect that's going to be the thing that, when we look back at the end of 2021, that will feel characterised the year. So that's about it for this week. To delve deeper into anything we discussed today, explore wonky.com and make sure you're signed up to the Wonky Daily email briefing, where we'll be following every twist and turn of the year ahead. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, 
drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to jim debbie dk and everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes until next week stay safe stay wonky 